Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. I know from my own experience that my moral compass was always stronger than my ambition, but it did cost me short term. I lived with that, but it actually gave me longevity. I mean, I was in advertising way past my sell-by date. That's Danny Kosravani, founder in 2017 of the DKG Perspective, a consultancy for CEOs at a crossroads. She was previously Executive Vice President, Client Service Management at J. Walter Thompson from 2002 to 2017, and before that, Founder and President of Bates Interactive, Bates Worldwide, from 1994 to 2000, for whom she set up one of the very first digital agencies affiliated with a large global agency. During her tenure at Bates, she launched the first websites for many clients, including government accounts, Avis, Cunard, and other leading companies. She earlier served as Executive Vice President at McCaffrey & McCall and previously spent six years as Senior Vice President at Young & Rubicum, with clients including AT&T, Colgate, Palmolive, and Johnson & Johnson. She read modern languages at the University of Oxford's St. Hilda's College. Danny, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Max, thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure, and I have to say we go back a ways. We worked closely together two decades ago when you launched the Whitney Museum's first truly coordinated marketing program, and you grew our audience from, I guess, 300,000 visitors to twice that, here we are 20 years later, and art museums are facing a reckoning around public responsibility. They're being accused of insufficient diversity in staff and board, collections, programs, and audience, and they're being skewered for having trustees with wealth earned from sources that are now considered toxic. So. I turn to the source. <laughs> what should these museums do? Should they lay low? Should they confess their sins? Or do they need to overhaul their direction? Okay, well, first of all, I want to say that the five years we worked together was really one of the most enjoyable experiences of my career. Not only did I learn a lot about American art from you, but we did so many interesting, innovative marketing things that I think still stand up to today. So I really want to thank you for being such a wonderful client. Um, <laughs> and, and I look back very fondly on during that period. I also remember that the New York Times kept referring to the Whitney as the prestigious Whitney. And I noticed they don't do that anymore. So anyway, it was really a great period. As to your question, it's very difficult for art institutions these days. They would like to stay in their ivory tower, stay out of the fray, but it's become impossible. The various activist movements affect companies as well as all types of institutions, universities, museums. So it's a really difficult period to navigate through, as well as having a mission statement, which most museums have. I think they now need to draw up their own moral framework and be guided by that so that they don't have to keep asking themselves what they have to do. If they have a framework and all the trustees and the curators and everybody knows exactly what that is, they would find that really helpful to guide them. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that they publish it. I'm just suggesting that they have it and they allow that to guide them. And also to look at that moral framework when it comes to choosing or retaining trustees. 
clearly in the past, what really mattered was what the trustees could bring to them in terms of knowledge and wealth. Nowadays, they have to look at the trustees' background as well. The other problem I think museums face is that there's a limited pool of wealthy trustees. So my advice to institutions would be go and look outside your pool. There are so many wealthy Americans in this country who don't necessarily even consider that they'd be eligible to be a trustee. But it's good to go out and cultivate them and train them and really widen the pool. I mean, that is a long-term project, but I think that's one of the things that they have to do to make sure that they don't have trustees on their board who are basically on the board in order to, what I call, laundering their reputation. The fact is, the moral architecture that you describe, the moral direction, it gets tested during times of crisis. It gets tested when there's a controversy, when there's an issue around a staff person or an exhibition. And that's when the rubber hits the road. Do you think most institutions are wired to handle that use of that moral compass in the face of crisis? because I don't think they have a moral framework. Each situation has to be looked at in its own right. But if you start it off by a moral framework, at least you've got to start. If you did a survey of various museums, not only of, you know, the trustees, but the curators and everyone else, and asked them what the moral framework was, I don't think they would know. So it's uh, like a Hippocratic oath. It's a well, do yes, no harm. yes, exactly. It's like um, <laughs> it's like really knowing what you know what you stand for. Uh, certain companies have certain cultures, and mm-hmm. everybody understands what that culture is. So, in a way, museums now have to have a moral compass, and everybody right. has to know what that is. Not to disagree with you, I think you're absolutely right. But there are quite a few museum directors and senior staff at a crossroads today. There have been a lot of departures of chief executives. And the directors often find themselves wedged between their conscience and the clear threat of distancing themselves from trustees who have compromised reputations. Yes, I totally understand that. I think that if you want to be guided by your own moral compass, you have to somehow subdue your ambition or Mm. the fear of losing your job. Because there's no question that you have to weigh those two together. Obviously, each situation has to be weighed on its own merit. But I know from my own experience that my moral compass was always stronger than my ambition. But it did cost me short term. I lived with that. But it actually gave me longevity. I mean, I was in advertising way past my sell-by date. So I think that people who, directors who are facing that, they may face a difficult situation then and there. But I think they might end up having longevity and become some of the directors that are wanted all through the world because they built a reputation of managing both the moral aspect of running a museum as well as the financial and artistic. Do you remember when we had a crisis in the Whitney Biennial in 2000 with the artist Hans Hacke and his display of work on Rudy Giuliani? And Hans Hacke's work got on the front page of the New York Times for insulting the mayor and comparing him with dictators. That was a moment to navigate, I would say, institutionally. And well, fascinating. yes, but, but you navigated it. It's very difficult being in any position of leadership these days because you have to have a strong core that stands up to criticism 
And if the criticism is valid, then changes. But you can't just, each time there's criticism, change. I mean, in a way, that's why the moral framework works, because Mm -hmm. you can look back and say, you know, am I right in insisting that I carry on this path? And that's kind of a form of reassurance. But it, it is difficult. And another thing is to have some sort of advisor that helps you make these decisions as you go along, you know, that you can discuss these things with honestly, because sometimes just grappling in your own head is not enough. And so many directors live in, of necessity, a bubble where they can't really talk to their trustees without the risk of offending them. You can't discuss those things with your trustees or even with your staff. You need to have some sort of outside source that you trust and that you can, and that can help you make those decisions. Danny, speaking of trust, you were a pioneer in developing the online identities of major brands and building trust in those brands. And you remember that Whitney's first web presence was in a chat room called Echo, and then we managed to buy Whitney.org from a family that had the name Whitney. How should cultural institutions go about changing their online presence today to acknowledge public commentary, which is everywhere, without abdicating their responsibility to fulfill their mission is internally arrived at? Well, first of all, I would discourage any outside commentary on the institution's website. I think your website is part of the brand. And so just the way you wouldn't allow somebody to come in and put a poster up in a column in your institution, you shouldn't allow any outside commentary on your website that is so much part of the brand that you have to keep that pure. But you can have presence in various social media outlets that you trust. I mean, a lot of people now have presence on Facebook and LinkedIn, but it needs to be curated because you will get a lot of commentary that is false or negative, and you have to have somebody curating it that can instantly answer the comment by posing a counterpoint of view or correcting a misimpression. Companies do this quite well. They make sure there's somebody monitoring all the commentary and helping to clarify things if there's something that's wrong. It's expensive to do that, but it's very important because it's part of your brand image. But would you acknowledge that for a lot of people who are disgruntled about museums today for their apparent allegiance to the 1%, for their failure to advance the interests of people of color across the board, that if you don't allow any commentary that's negative, you can also appear to be out of touch? Oh, I'm not saying don't allow it. I'm saying definitely allow it. It's just that if there's something clearly a falsehood, you want to correct it. But I think absolutely, if people want to vent, you have to let them vent. Don't let them do it on your website. Otherwise, yes, I'm talking about when they say things that when they claim you've done things that you've clearly not done. If it's criticism, you have to allow it. And in fact, even acknowledges it. Just say Mm -hmm. thank you for your feedback. Right. Although sometimes they're saying thank you for your feedback and go away when people are still on the husting saying change, do something different. And it does get to be an awkward counterpoint of the real space of an institution versus its virtual space. I don't think anyone has a solution for that. There is no clear solution because everybody has a microphone. 
you have to figure out how to not listen to all the noise. I mean, you have to be able to uh, listen to the criticism, see what is just noise and what is valid. And that's very Mm -hmm. hard. And one of the areas of disgruntlement has been investments in industries like oil and gas and forestry and big pharma. And impact investing is on the minds of cultural leaders that are overseeing big endowments. There are tens of billions of dollars tied up in museum endowments alone. What would you counsel museum directors whose investment committees are opposed to walking away from stocks in those kinds of industries? Well, the first thing I would say is don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because a lot of people will say, let's not invest in, and then they'll name five or six categories. And my point of view is that within each of those categories, you will have companies that are doing well and are perfectly valid from point of view of a good investment as well as a good company. So, for example, in the oil industry, there are oil companies who are now really moving towards clean energy and are trying to be helpful and supportive of climate change. So I think you need to look at the individual companies within the category rather than the whole category. I don't necessarily agree with a director saying don't invest in any of these categories. You can't say don't invest in big pharma because that's a source of good investment growth. There are good companies within big pharma and companies that are less responsible. There's one category, for example, that I would absolutely say stay away from, and that would be something like gun manufacturing. But on the whole, I would say just be very judicious about the companies rather than the categories. That's fair. And it's very hard to make impact investing work purely, to your point, because... Well, yes, because you you still have to... I'm not saying you necessarily have to have huge growth, but you do have to have some growth. So that's why you sort of have to just be selective about the companies and worry less about the category. Danny, we're watching a lot of major U.S. brands take a public stand against a whole raft of issues, racial injustice voter suppression, and many other issues. And they're in turn being savaged by the Republican Party, which is seeking its own version of a kind of cancel culture by advocating boycotts. What are you advising C-suite leaders in American corporations in the face of this embrace of progressive values? How does that work? (laughs) You know, during the last administration, early on, I wrote a piece for LinkedIn where I suggested that CEOs needed to step into a vacuum where there was no moral leadership and they had to be the ones to provide it. And so I think that CEOs tend to get more active when they see that there is a vacuum and it needs to be filled. Going forward, that might be less the case. They might feel that they can just go back to being concentrating on their own company. So it's, it's a wait, wait and see. I would say to a CEO, if there's a cause that you're passionate about, you happen to be passionate about it yourself, climate change or whatever, that's fine because that becomes part of the mission of your company. But otherwise, stay away from politics if there isn't a vacuum. And hopefully there will be less of a vacuum in the future. 
And within these arenas, within these various corporate entities that we're seeing react in such a way, are you noticing a trend? Is there anything we could summarize about this sudden infusion of, as you say, a political vantage point? I don't want to be cynical, but I think there's a little bit of jumping on the bandwagon. Mm -hmm. That's what I think might sort of subside in the future. You know, you take someone like Jamie Dimon, head of J.P. Morgan. He never used to talk about politics or things outside of his own realm. And he started to do that quite vocally. Now, it'll be interesting to see in the future whether he feels less of a need to do that. I mean, I don't think he's uh, one of the people who's jumping on the bandwagon at all. I think he just saw a vacuum and felt he need, there needed to be voices. But other CEOs are jumping on the bandwagon because they feel it's a way of drawing attention to themselves. It's an interesting phenomena. I mean, their yeah. PR agency might say to them, you know, if you pick up this, we can get interviews for you if you become vocal in this area. So as I say, I'm being a little cynical, but I think some of it is a form of ego boosting. I'm curious about what you've surmised in the past four years about CEO attitudes. Clearly, this is a change. Are there other things that have surprised you in your dealings with individual CEOs and um, C-suite well, executives? Two things. One is that I was surprised at how many people don't feel the need for an outside voice that they can rely on. And it puts them in a lonely position because, as we said before, you might not want to talk to your trustees or your board of directors. And sometimes you can't talk to your direct reports because if you're thinking about doing something that affects their future, then that makes them uneasy. So I'm, I'm surprised when I talk to them about the need of having someone like me they don't see it at all. I find that interesting, and I've thought about that, and I think it's because it's outside their comfort zone. They have learned to keep things to themselves. I look at it, and I just say, what a lonely position they're in if they don't <laughs> have some kind of right. um, outside help. It's all the things that the CEO has to think about and grapple with that he doesn't he's not necessarily able to air it. He'll get feedback about what he's doing within the company. But there are a lot of things that people just won't tell a CEO or a senior mm. person because mm. they're afraid of the backlash. I mean, even the head of HR can't tell a CEO something that the CEO doesn't want to hear because, again, the HR person is afraid for their job. So, But if you have somebody on the outside whose job it is to tell the truth, and it doesn't matter if the CEO gets mad at them, then um, they they at least can feel a little bit more comfortable. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I noticed is, I don't know whether it's because they're in this position where they're often quite lonely, but a lot of CEOs are very insecure. They have such a confident facade that you don't see it. And when times are as difficult as they are now, I just wonder where they're getting help. The leadership gap of... An institution of any kind for profit, nonprofit is often that, that people are afraid to hear the truth. I, let me ask you about the UK, and it's been enduring its own form of reckoning about the spoils of a colonial past with new demands that public and private institutions restitute artifacts to sub-Saharan African nations, Nigeria, Ethiopia. 
Do you have a general sense of how the reputation of British institutions are going to fare as these protests mount and as the claims for return of property grow? Well, I don't really have an informed position because I think it's a situation you have to study more in depth. A lot of the companies are suffering from the backlash of Brexit in the sense that a lot of people in other countries see it as a return to colonialism when in fact the country really doesn't have any colonies anymore. So I think there is some negative effect because of Brexit. And I think generally people on the outside feel that the UK is just floundering. There's discussion about Scotland wanting to have another referendum so that they can part and not be part of the UK anymore. Northern Ireland is actually thinking about joining with with the Republic of Ireland. So I think just overall, my sense of what's going on in the UK is that I have no clue about it. Mm -hmm. It's just so so complicated and so mixed in with other things. I think they do suffer from the legacy of their empire. Uh, There's still people around who kind of believe in the greatness of the UK and can't let go of that notion. So I think Mm. all of that kind of clouds what's going on at the moment. How about the empire on this side of the pond? How are we doing in respect to reputation internationally? What would you advise from a marketing perspective about the United well, States you know, to the I, Biden? I mean, America had, a, during the last four years, had a terrible reputation mm-hmm. outside. Hopefully, you know, the new administration and new leadership will restore it. I think it got so bad that I know Americans who, when they went abroad, would say they were Canadians. Mm -hmm. rather than admit to being Americans. So I think there's a lot of repair work that can be done. But my sense is people's memories are short and it will change again rapidly. But America needs to be seen to be doing a lot of good now outside of its own borders. And Mm -hmm. if they do that, I think they just restore the reputation they had. Well, your career in the world of advertising and branding and marketing was in so many different dimensions. And today we're seeing criticism of companies, of enterprises, of institutions, of leaders for missteps that in the past might not have been known or visible or talked about. Is marketing in the face of that, as we knew it, controlling a brand, is that tone deaf today in respect to this open wound of criticism? I think it's so difficult to be in marketing these days because (laughs) there's nothing you can do that won't offend one group or another. And the risk is if you do try to do any marketing that offends nobody, it ends up being bland and invisible. I think that's one of the reasons that so many marketeers have gravitated towards transactional marketing rather than image marketing. Transactional marketing in the sense that they're selling specific products online. There's very little room there to get things wrong. It's a very difficult situation. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't want to be a head of marketing these days because You have to get to a point where you just accept that you're going to get criticism and that you're going to offend one group or another and learn to live with it. But that's very hard to do. 
Danny, what kinds of campaigns are we less likely to see in the future as a result of what you're describing about a shift in what's being well, promoted? Well, I think, for example, any of the campaigns that were, were even slightly outrageous or even just slightly different, you're just not going to see for a while. That's one of the reasons I think people will spend less money on image advertising and more on digital advertising. I think campaigns will become more factual. It was the strong image-building campaigns that became controversial. I think we will just see less of that. But, you know, marketing goes through cycles. We're living through a moment where there are now so many different activist groups, all of them with a slightly different agenda, that it's very difficult to steer clear of all of them. For the time being, particularly coming out of the pandemic, companies are going to remain very safe. They're going to do very bland, safe marketing until they feel that they've got enough leeway that they can branch out a bit. Forgive the pun, but speaking of steering clear, you worked on the Cunard account at Bates. What would you counsel a travel industry company seeking a new footing in the face of global concerns about health safety? That's the key. I mean, that key message has to be in what way are they making travel safe? For example, I remember when the CEO of JetBlue came out and talked in great detail about why the air in JetBlue planes was almost purer than the air that you breathe outside. And I'm sure that's the case for a lot of the airlines, but he was the one who came out and talked about it. So you'd get the impression that somehow JetBlue was safer than other airlines. So I think a lot of marketing for travel, people are dying to go out and travel. They just need permission to know that it's safe. So QNOT, for example, if I were the QNOT marketing director, I would say because their clientele is high-end and from affluent countries, it would be good for them to come out and say, all passengers have to be vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So when you go on a QNR, you know that both the staff and the people you're going to meet are vaccinated. I would have an area within the ship that is a quarantine area. And you'd say, just in case somebody gets sick, we know how to look after them. Mm-hmm. And while they're in the quarantine area, we will not charge them the because that's the other worry people have, that if they go on a cruise, for example, then they're stuck in their room, can't use any of the amenities, but have paid a high cost. So if Cunard, for example, were to say, you know, we're going to refund you for the period that you're in quarantine, I think doing things like that to give permission to people to say they're not wasting their money if they travel with them is something that they have to do for the foreseeable future. Well, Danny, that's a great note to end on. I think all of us want to travel. We all want to get out and about and be in the world and see the world. And I'm just grateful you could make time today to spend a little bit of mental energy with me and with our listeners. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for these interesting questions. It really made me think. We've been speaking today with Danny Kosravani, founder in 2017 of the DKG Perspective and a 30-year veteran advertising executive. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.